Our first reading this morning comes from the book of Acts, chapter 3, verses 12 through 19. I'm told you can find this on page 120 in the New Testament section of your pew Bibles. Feel free to follow along or feel free to just listen now for God's word to you and to me on this day. When Peter saw it, he addressed the people. You Israelites, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and rejected in the presence of Pilate, though he had decided to release him. But you rejected the Holy and Righteous One and asked to have a murder given to you. You killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And by faith in his name, his name itself has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And that faith is through, is, and through the faith, goodness, and the faith that is through Jesus has given him perfect health in the presence of all of you. And now, friends, I know that you acted in ignorance, also did, as did also your rulers. In this way, God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets that the Messiah would suffer. Repent, therefore, and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. And our second reading this morning comes from 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. We do not, what we do know is this. When he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. <coughs> Everyone who commits sin is guilty of lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he was revealed to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. <coughs> no one who sins has either seen him or, know, or known him. Little children, do not let anyone deceive you. Everyone who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're here in the season of Easter. The season of Easter is such a, a wonderful time in the life of the church. It's, um, at least for me, my second favorite season of the church year. The first is Christmas tide, when we learn that God's love is revealed to us in a personal and relational, um, the, our theological fancy pants term for that is incarnational type of a way, right? And we are called to be incarnational in our communities in the same way uh, that Jesus was incarnational on earth. And then the second season that's also uh, similar is this season that we're in now, the season of Eastertide, right? When we are invited 
to join God in the work of resurrection, to join God in the new thing God is doing in our communities. And there's a scary little second part of that, right? Because doing something new often, if not always, requires us to stop doing something else in order to have time or space um, to be able to do the new thing that God is inviting us to do. This is the scary part because we love those things that we've been doing all these years and we love the way we've been doing them all these years and they've served us well and they've brought us safely to this point and we want that desperately for those for whom we are trying to be incarnational, trying to show God's love in the context of relationship. So that's all some um, dense speaking right there and so I think I would like to share with you, if it's quite all right, a story um, that's a little long, but I think begins to illustrate uh, the point. It's a story um, from Carrie Newcomer, who is a, a singer-songwriter um, who sings about spiritual matters. Um, her music is really very good. I recommend it. And she also writes some essays and poems and, and the like. And, um, and this is a story called Love Notes and Yard Art. Uh, it's here in this book, A Permeable Life. There's a um, uh, CD of the same name that um, has a song on it called Forever Ray, which, which sort of grew out of this story. But, um, but here's the story, Love Notes and Yard Art. Janet Snope stood up at the October meeting of the College View Neighborhood Association. It's an eyesore, it's tacky, and frankly, it's just a little embarrassing, and I believe there may be a littering problem as usual, following any pronouncement by Janet, the room let out a collective sigh. The Snopes family had only recently moved to College View, but Janet was a woman of strong opinions concerning personal ownership and very quickly became one of the more vocal members of the group. College View Avenue was in an older section of town within, within biking distance to Indiana University. The neighborhood had gone through many changes over the years, transforming from a vibrant neighborhood of young families to a quiet street full of gradually aging owners to college student rental property. By the 1980s, the area had fallen into sad disrepair with only small indicators of its former charm. Then in the financially optimistic days of the 90s, a wave of style-conscious couples and families started buying up the shabby bungalows. They pulled up the shag carpet and refinished the oak floors. They stripped years of paint off the baseboards and moldings. They steamed away layers of wallpaper and fixed the leaky windows. They planted hydrangeas and hosta and spring daffodils to complement the tall, wide trees that graced the newly rebuilt sidewalks. After a semester of particularly noisy and party-prone students, a group of the homeowners formed the College View Neighborhood Association. They petitioned the city for stricter noise regulations and set up a neighborhood watch to discourage theft and vandalism. They cleaned up the alleys and pushed city government to begin recycling pickup. Eventually, most of the rentals turned to single-family ownership, and as the neighborhood became more quiet and safe, the College View Association shifted its watchdog focus to other things. They focused on education by bringing experts to speak at meetings on sustainability, weatherizing, environmentally friendly lawn care. They revived the annual summer block party, and many homes were now on the annual historic Bloomington and Garden tours. 
But Janet Snopes was a woman who relished a good fight and had no trouble finding real or imagined wrongs to right. This month, she had turned her gaze to Ella's front yard, just a bungalow in an alley away from her own. The meeting had gone late, and everyone knew that Janet could be a bit long-winded, so Sharon moved to adjourn and take up Janet's topic next month, and Ellen, the College View Association current president, quickly seconded the motion. Ella's house was a green craftsman-style bungalow situated on the corner of College View and University Street. It had a gracious and deep front porch. In the middle of a hard summer rain, you could still sit out on the porch swing without getting wet. Ella was in her 90s and the only original owner still living in the neighborhood. Having passed through all the decline and revival, she was the neighborhood's most solid and eternally present soul. Ella and her husband Ray had built their house in 1947. They'd married soon after Ray returned from military service. Ray had worked as an electrician at the Westinghouse plant from 1953 until he'd retired. Although they never had children of their own, all the original neighbors thought of them as family, kind of sideways relatives who lived just down the street. Ella was always good for a home-baked cookie, or on a hot summer day, a glass of red or green Kool-Aid tinkling with ice cubes pulled out of her old metal ice cube tray. Ray was always on hand if a neighbor's circuit view or to offer carburetor or electrical advice when groups of men still stood around cars with hoods up and fixed them without the aids of computerized diagnostic tools. As they aged, the neighborhood changed, and there were not so many families, but they were still known, even by the renters, as the nice old people down the street. No one soaked their windows, slit their tires, or turned over their garbage cans, even when the neighborhood was at its rowdiest. In 1985, Ray retired. He felt a little unfocused and a little at loose ends. He was restless in a way that only a man who had done physical work every day of his adult life can be. He puttered in his wood shop back in the garage. He read and reread his stack of National Geographic magazines. He tinkered around with the car and fixed the cord of an old toaster oven. One day, he was hanging around the house, generally underfoot, and driving Ella to distraction with endless household efficiency advice until she finally shooed him outside, saying, Ray, it's a lovely day. Maybe there's some yard work you could do. Ray, a little put out and disgruntled, slumped out onto the porch. He surveyed the yard and garage and sidewalks. He had let the place go a little in the past few years. The old place could use a bit of sprucing up. <clears throat> and that was when he hatched his own home beautification plan. He put on his yard gloves and set to mowing the lawn. Then he edged the grass at the sidewalk and stacked the fireplace wood more neatly next to the garage. At the end of the day, he straightened his tired back and felt good about the visible difference he'd made in that one day. So in the coming weeks, he pruned back the old lilac bush and mulched the flower beds. He thatched and reseeded the grass, fixed the gutter spouts, patched the cracks of the driveway, and finally, after much determined beautification, Ray looked out at his tidy homestead and felt proud. Ray looked around at the declining neighborhood and thought to himself, you know, what this neighborhood really needs is a little cheering up. So he went out to a lawn ornament and garden shop out on the edge of town and returned with a larger than life cement rabbit. 
It was a dapper little statue sporting a waistcoat and breeches, standing on his hind legs and offering a little waiter's tray with a flourish. He told Ella that he had picked out that rabbit because it reminded him of meeting her all those years ago when she was a waitress at the Ladyman's Cafe downtown. He'd watch her pouring coffee and taking orders on a small waitress pad with a stub of a pencil that she'd touched to her tongue before she began writing. She laughed easily, worked hard, and had shoulder-length wavy red hair, a regular hometown Rita Hayworth in a yellow waitress uniform. She had offered him a wide, generous smile with her recitation of the lunch specials. And when she turned, <coughs> when she turned to place his order with the short order cook, he'd caught a scent of Shalimar perfume mixed with bacon and lemon meringue pie. He was smitten. After that, Ray spent way too much of his weekly pay on breakfasts and lunches he couldn't afford. He'd watch her carrying those plates of eggs, country ham, and fried potatoes on a tray hitched up on her shoulder. When Ella heard the story and why he'd bought the little rabbit waiter lawn ornament, she smiled and hugged him long and hard around the neck. Ella loved that rabbit, and every time she looked out the window, she would remember how her own heart had skipped a beat when she passed his table and how he'd wink at her when she was making coffee. They started putting little things on the tray just for fun. They left peanuts still in the shell for the squirrels and birds, a cut flower from the garden. But soon, each morning, Ray began to leave Ella little notes on the tray. Ella would check in the late morning or early afternoon and find a bit of paper or a three by five card weighted down by a small stone so the note would not blow away. Ella loved returning from the grocery store or a meeting of her book club at the library and finding there on the rabbit's tray a message just for her. The note said things like, here's looking at you, kid, or to my honey bunch, happy birthday, happy anniversary, ha cha 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 cha. <laughs> and the notes were always signed with a smile, an L-shaped nose, three lines of hair standing straight up and two eyes, one a dot and the other a horizontal wink and the signature, Forever Ray. After she read each note, she would usually go and find Ray and give him another hug around the neck. This was how Ella and Ray began collecting yard art. Regularly, they would visit the statuary store out on the bypass. They brought home a mama duck and her five small ducklings because it reminded them of the pond at Ray's parents' old farm. They bought two kissing Dutch children in honor of Ella's maternal grandmother and grandfather who had come over from Holland with nothing but a suitcase and a sewing machine. They put out a cement collie dog that stood at faithful attention to honor Blondie who brought their paper and slept, in, uh, slept at the foot of their bed for 15 years. They bought a gnome with a staff, an impressive Bigfoot, and Sheriff Andy Griffith to protect the house when the neighborhood was in its roughest phase. Their purchases began to get bigger and eventually Ray borrowed a flatbed truck and brought home a life-sized angel with open hands and bare feet. Once after Easter Sunday service, together they picked out and brought home a sweet-faced Madonna. Ellis said she liked the lady because if she were to be completely honest, God had always seemed big and bossy and Jesus was just too perfect with every hair in place, but she'd always thought that Mary, with her parcel of kids, laundry to hang and dinners to cook, was someone a person could actually sit down for that occasional and important heart to heart. Well, Memorial Day, they brought home a poured concrete shoes of a soldier, which they placed 
which they placed near the orange tiger lilies. Ray recited the names of some of his friends who had not made it home from the war all those many years ago. Jim Berman, Carl Hanover, Lee Ritchie, Thomas Kelly. He poured out his pulled out his pocket handkerchief and wiped his eyes and blew his nose. He and Ella stood there quietly, hand in hand, while the evening gathered. They continued collecting yard statuary. Each piece was a remembrance, an image that delighted or comforted. There were sentinels and protectors, wry winks and nods to one memory or another. And every morning, rain or shine, Ray faithfully left a small note on the tray of the rabbit waiter, which stood in the place of honor at the center of the yard. Today, Ella is looking out the window at the wide-winged angel and at her always affable Madonna. She likes to sit, there, sit here in the sunlight with her morning tea and enjoys how the morning light rests so gently on all those familiar images. Ray passed away last year. He slipped away quietly after a bout of pneumonia. He'd gotten over the illness, but it had taken too much out of him. Ella remembered how old folks used to call pneumonia the old people's friend. Ray had been basically good-humored and blessedly healthy, but his body had become like a pocket watch that had been wound so often and for so long that the springs and small gears just couldn't hold on to true time anymore. No shock or momentary panic of heart attack or long drawn out cancer, just finally letting go, a gradual quieting of the breath. She remembers how after the memorial service, she'd gotten down a number of the shoe boxes secured with bits of string from the hall closet. She had tenderly cut the string with her little sewing scissors, and inside were hundreds of little notes, three by five cards and love letters, each and every one signed with a grin and a wink forever ray. She read them all. She reread them again. Then she kissed each one and put it back in a shoebox. Now every morning she goes out to the rabbit and places her own note on the tray. But unlike Ray, she places no stone to hold it there. She just lets the wind carry them, sending them lifting down the street and out into the world. Wednesday, on her way to the doctor, Janet found a piece of paper in the holly bush next to her front door. She picked it out of the sticky leaves and read, Don't be afraid. On Thursday, while walking her dog, she caught a note that was tripping down the street. It said, You're right where you need to be. Gavin, the UPS driver, stepped out of his truck in front of Janet's house. He picked up a small card laying in the sidewalk. He read, There is still wonder in the world. It's been propped up on his dashboard ever since. On Friday, Janet pulled into her driveway and found a wet 3x5 card sticking to the front porch steps. All it said was, it will be all right. It just takes time. She looked down the street, the late autumn wind whipping down from the corner of College View and University Avenues. At the November Campus View Neighborhood Association meeting, Janet Snopes made no mention or disparaging comments about Ella's front yard or ever again for that matter. And since then, each week, she brings Ella a pie or a casserole. Ella always pours them a little tea, and they talk about the notes and what they mean. Janet sends her teenage son to shovel the walks when it snows, and once in a while, she places her own note on the tray. But what she writes upon those bits of paper is a story for another day.
Beloved, we are all children of God. We are all called to show forth God's love in our context, in ways that are incarnational. And further, we are called to live in, to join God in this new thing that God is doing, in this Easter tide um, work of resurrection, in the new thing that is bursting forth in this world. If you follow the logic in 1 John, and I understand that um, Ian is doing a sermon series on this here in the, uh, in the season of Eastertide, so I don't want to steal too much of his thunder, but the basic way it works is, um, is what we call the transitive property, right? The, the math class that I was not very good at. In it, we learned that if A equals B and B equals C, then you can reasonably infer that A also equals C. Right? And, and that's basically how all the Greek works in 1 John. I, I don't know um, in Ian's seminary. So Presbyterian pastors, when we go to school, we have to learn both Greek and Hebrew. Uh, and then we have to learn exegesis, which is basically a fancy word for translating uh, both of them. And usually what happens in exegesis classes, you take one particular book and you translate the thing. So for my seminary class, it was 1 John. So I have, a, I have both a fondness for that book and also for the way that he mounts his argument, which is, which is Jesus says, you are in me and I am in the Father, therefore you are carrying out the will of the Father, right? Basic transitive property. So because we have seen the way Jesus loves, which is the way that Jesus learned from the Father, then we are to go out and do that in the world, the transitive property. Um, and, uh, much like math class, we're not always going to get it right. We're going to make mistakes. And they're going to be well-intentioned. You know, Janet Snopes is not complaining about the little pieces of paper. Uh, well, I'll give, I'm probably being too charitable, but I'm going to go f and say she's not complaining about the little pieces of paper because she just likes something to complain about. She's complaining about the little pieces of paper because she's genuinely concerned for her neighborhood, right? She wants it to be the nice sort of place to live um, out of genuine care and concern. However, when she takes time to form a relationship, the incarnational piece with Ella, her understanding of what those papers are, what their meaning is, and why they're there is transformed. And not only that, um, transitively, because Janet and Ella are able to establish a caring relationship then Janet's son, whose name is escaping me right this second, who goes and shovels the walk, is also able to have a transformed relationship to participate in the um, continued resurrection of a neighborhood, to give back to someone who has been the steady force in this neighborhood now for 50 plus years. Um, right? The transitive property carries forward. So what does this mean for all of us? And what is our invitation here in the season of Easter? Well, God has a plan for us. We have seen the love that God has, and we stand here invited to carry it out into the world, to transform our neighborhood. But in order to do that, there are probably things we're going to need to stop doing, things that we've enjoyed doing, things that helped us, things that, um, things that we've done well. Um, and that's a scary part. I want to tell you a little story that um, Jan Edmiston, one of the co-moderators of the current um, 
General Assembly who will be very relieved to finish her term this June when the new General Assembly um, convenes. Uh, and after that, we'll be starting as the new uh, Presbytery leader in Charlotte, North Carolina. But one of the stories she tells, she used to pastor a church in, um, in Arlington, Virginia, right outside of Washington, DC. And it's important to say at the beginning that this story worked great in Arlington, Virginia. It will not work in Pluckerman, New Jersey, right? It, every place has its own, um, its own community with its own needs and being incarnational in that spot, joining God in the new thing that God is doing in the season of Easter, joining God's plan for resurrection in Pluckerman looks different than it does in Alexandria, Virginia, looks different than it does even down the road in Metuchen. Right? It's unique to each very place. Looks different in the College View neighborhood in Bloomington, Indiana. It's different in each place. But Jan tells a story that, um, and it's important to know, Alexandria is the place you move when you are young and idealistic and you've got a, a high-ranking job at a nonprofit or a paragovernment organization, or maybe you're working in the government directly, or you work for the military, and you're going to Washington, and you're going to change the world, right? This is where you move. Um, and so, as such, it is a younger-than-average community, and it's a pretty transient community because once you get there and you do your five years trying to change the world, one of two things, or three things, or four things happen, right? Either you start a family of your own and you need to move to a place where it's more affordable to have more space, or you're working for the army and you get deployed elsewhere, or, um, or changing the world isn't really as easy or as wonderful as it seemed like it was gonna be, and so you go back to Detroit. Whatever it is, it's a community that turns over fairly regularly. So she and the leadership of her church um, realized that also because of the young and transient demographic, People usually leave for the weekend, and they go back to wherever they're from, wherever their parents are or whatever. So they work Monday through Friday, they Friday night they leave and go to wherever it is they're going, where their people are, and then they come back Sunday evening. And they spend a long time praying. How do we respond to this transient community around us? How can we be the church for them? And it's also important to note a lot of these people have no idea what church is or what it's about. So something bad would happen like 9-11, right? And people intuitively know in their soul in times like that that I need to go and I need to do something spiritual. So they would call the pastor, they would call the church phone and leave a message for the pastor with questions like, where do I get tickets to come to your church? <laughs> right? People who don't know anything about church, people who wouldn't understand, um, cool though it is, what the word acolyte means, much less why a kid is walking with a cool brass thing and lighting a candle. Now in our context, where we've grown up with that, that's very meaningful and it's a great way to engage kids in worship. But to people who are calling and, and asking, where do I get tickets for your church? Right, their experience is something totally different than what we have. So the way we minister to them, the way we invite them in, needs to be totally different than what we're doing. You know, they're, they're not going to come here um, and understand our liturgy. They're not going to come here and be able to sing the tenor part of um, the hymn, whether it's in the blue hymnal or whether it's in Glory to God, which I highly recommend, and I'm glad you're uh, moving forward on. 
for those of you who are young like me, there's an app. So, so I have the Glory to God app and can sing the hymns from my iPad, which is really cool. Um, so I, I'm glad that, you know, my experience is different from the people who call and say, where do I get tickets to your church? Um, Anyhow, so the point is, the leadership team of the church spent some time praying. What are we going to do about this? And they realized that the people go away for the weekend and come back. So if they were going to do something, the time to do it would be like 6 o'clock on Sunday night, right? And so um, they prayed and prayed and decided they were just going to open up the basement of the church. They didn't call it a basement. They called it um, spiritual ground, right, the ground floor of the church, and just invite people in. And so... Um, they originally had an idea where they were gonna uh, sing like some contemporary music and they hired um, a nursery school uh, person so that if people had kids, they could like watch the kids. Um, and so they were gonna have this praise music and they were gonna have a slightly um, like Starbucks hipstered up version of the morning sermon and people were gonna just sort of talk about it. Uh, and what they found was that A, these people didn't have kids, so they paid the nursery school person for a whole year and, and no kids ever showed up. Um, and B, they were not really interested in the hipstered up um, version of the sermon. What they wanted to know was like basic stuff. Like, so they did a six month series on basic pastoral care. Like, like what do I say when, when my friend's grandmother dies? Do I need to go to the funeral? What, what's helpful to say and what is not helpful to say? And they brought in different speakers and it turned into a discussion. And as the community grew, um, because it was young and transient and disconnected people, they decided that in addition to Sunday, they would, um, the Sunday meeting, that Monday nights a local bar had half price burgers. And so um, a way they would get back to the community is they would all show up there on Monday night, get the half price burgers, and then tip the difference right in the price to the to the waiters and waitresses who didn't have many customers on Monday night but still had the same living expenses you know um, to sort of give back to the community so they would all go there on Monday night and over time um, they started a Friday night game night for the people who didn't have dates and had nothing else to do and they would just um, they had a text list and they would meet at somebody's house and play play games and then they realized that they had to move all the time so they bought a couple dollies and every Saturday morning would go as a crew to move whomever needed to move to a new apartment because Saturday mornings are the day when you move into your new apartment. And so somebody would be moving and they were maybe Christian or maybe they were Muslim or maybe, who knows, maybe they were Jewish, who knows. But, um, but they were friends with one of the people who was involved who said, hey, do you need help moving? And they would say, yeah, and so 30 of them would show up with their dollies and they'd move all the stuff and buy a pizza for lunch. Um, and they were involved in that way. And so for like 10 years or so, this ministry really flourished. Um, and eventually the church changed pastors and the new pastor didn't really understand or didn't really want to do the Sunday night, um, the Sunday night thing anymore, and so that aspect of it uh, unfortunately stopped. But the way you can tell that the Spirit was involved in all of this is um, Jan had the opportunity recently when she was in D.C. as part of her moderatorial duties to go to the restaurant with the half-price burgers on a Monday night, and the group was still there. The people in it had all changed because that's how the community is, but the group of people were still gathering in that place to support one another on Monday nights. 
right? God's doing something new in that community. Very different than what had been done before, but showing forth the love of Christ in meaningful ways. Now, like I said at the beginning, this won't work in Pluckerman, right? Pluckerman is not that transient. I, you are at a, a very good point in your life because you've just gone through all the work of doing a mission review. So you know something about your demographics now. You have some idea of where you fit and what the needs of the community are. You have a new pastor to help equip and encourage you to respond to those things. So you'll figure out the details of the new thing God wants to be doing here in Pluckerman. And my hope for you is that you will jump on that opportunity to go and show God's love, right? To join God in the new thing God is doing, to show up for people and show the love that you've seen, to let people know that you are indeed the loved children of God and that you are indeed following God in changing, restoring, and renewing this world that God so loves. For the sake of the gospel and the sake of the world, may it be so. Amen.